Um, I, uh, I, there's, this is a very, I, there's many things, um, I wanted to say, uh, but welcome to Reengage, <laughs> where we watch every episode of the sci-fi series, Star Trek, The Next Generation, and re-engage with the show from the perspective of adult storytellers instead of the late to early millennial Gen X people we are when it first aired. Uh, today we're talking about the 21st episode of season three, Hollow Pursuits. I'm so very excited to welcome my fellow cultural bridge officers to discuss such a nerve-wracking episode. We've even got a very special guest to talk through a very plausible theory of holodecks within holodecks within holodecks, but we will introduce him in a moment. First, let me say hi to you. How's it going, Kate Yeager? Oh my gosh, I was so anxious watching this episode, uh, <laughs> so I am anxious to discuss it. It just brought back so many old feelings, uh, so I'm doing great. <laughs> Sweet. All right. We're going to be nervous here together. Jimmy G, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Anytime I get to talk about diminutive Rikers, it's a good day. <laughs> <laughs> and pie-eating Wesleys. Yes. <laughs> Eric Curry, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing wonderfully. I'm very excited to talk about Reg. Uh, let's move it. And I am very excited to welcome a guest, Lucian Khan. How are you today? I am fantastic. I am very excited to be here and talk about Hollow Pursuits. You are a game designer and writer uh, from, from Brooklyn. I think we all have uh, some connection to Brooklyn uh, in the past, but I, I just saw your thread about watching Star Trek and this episode in particular, and I was like, I want to talk to you about this when we get to it. Uh, but what's before we get into that, what is your connection to, to the Star Trek franchise other than this current rewatch that you're in now? When did you first start paying attention to it? So I started watching Next Generation when it started airing um, when I was a kid. My mom was a big 60s trekker and watched all the original series stuff in college. So as soon as um, Next Gen existed, she just demanded that we watch it. I watched Next Generation when it aired. I watched DS9 when it aired. I watched Voyager when it aired. I've just kind of been here for the ride. Nice. And then, like us, did you want to get back into something that was maybe nostalgic in some ways during, during this pandemic era here? Definitely. I also wanted to fill in some gaps because mm. I I realized that in the 90s, you know, I would kind of watch Star Trek when my mom and grandma were watching it. Like it would just be on, but I didn't actually see every single episode. So I wanted to go back in and, and watch all of them consecutively and see all the stuff I'd missed. And that's I think that was the impetus for a lot of us was like we loved certain episodes. We remember some of them. Some of them have stuck with us forever. This being a big one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so again, this is Hollow Pursuits. It first aired April 30th, 1990. I'm only going to go into a few current events that were happening because we have a lot to get into to discuss uh, with this episode. But uh, the thing that I noted was uh, the day after this aired, a American was freed from Lebanon uh, as a hostage. Uh, it was this thing that was talked about all the time in the 80s and here uh, the start of the 90s about uh, the hostage crisis. Uh, it was during the Lebanese Civil War. Many groups, many of them not really sure uh, which government they were supposedly the representatives of, but they released a, an American today. He was the formerly the uh, director of the Lebanese International School. Uh, his name was Frank Reed. He was uh, abducted on September 9th, 1986, and on May 1st, he was released. And it was just a, a, a harrowing story of him. He said he was blindfolded almost the entire three and a half years he was in captivity. And it's just a, a reminder of, of, of what those years were like, uh, especially in pop culture, it was referred to a lot. Do you guys you know, remember all that about the hostage crisis? Yes. 
I used to have nightmares about it, like legit, like as a kid, like I would have nightmares that that was the situation that would be happening and I would be separated from my parents. And like, yeah, it was very much in the zeitgeist. Filtered into our sci-fi a lot as well. So yeah, that was, that was the big event that was happening around this time. Kate, what was going around in pop culture? Nothing compares to you continued to be number one. That song is just got staying power. Then it has staying power now. Nothing compares to it. Right? I'm waiting for a Kate Bush era resurgence with this song. So we just need someone, you know, a Stranger Things, you know, cameo like uh, as they progress in their timeline. To get Sinead in there? Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, yeah, right. On the R&B album circuit, Please Hammer Don't Hurt Em was the number one album. Which is amazing. A classic in and of itself. Back on the movie front, Pretty Woman reclaimed its number one spot. And on Broadway, Prelude to a Kiss opened at the Helen Hayes Theater. And that's what was happening in pop culture. Prelude to a Kiss, that was such a thing that people, I remember in the 90s, so many uh, companies ended up doing it yeah. because of A lot of, of colleges, success. too. A lot of colleges, I was yeah. in a production. Oh, yeah? Ooh. And whom did you portray, Jimmy? I can't remember the character's name, but it was the best friend. Oh, the bartender, Rocky Rocky Carroll in the think. in the movie, I think. I yeah. slayed at the That's audition fun. with one of his lines. Like, the, the room just stopped working. They were laughing so hard. One of my best memories. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but don't remember the actual character But I don't name. remember the character. Love it, man. That's my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's Eric's superpower is to be able to recall that information. Uh, right. Speaking of which, we've got a lot of guest stars to talk about in this episode. Really, we've got two, but that works for me. They're, they're, they each contain multitudes. Exactly. So we'll, we'll start with Charlie Lang as Lieutenant Duffy, who t- makes the most out of his very brief appearance, memorable and fun. He definitely took the fall for this whole adventure since we never see him again. Uh, <laughs> right after this, he was in the live action Flash. He was Robert, one of the longest serving secretaries of Murphy Brown. Alien Nation, oh. Dragnet, Perry Mason, LA Law, almost all of his stuff is tv but when he did movies my goodness he did some of my favorites like bird fire in the sky hear no evil jesus christ hell yes er pacific blue murder she wrote days of our lives matlock fresh prince a hell of a career now we get to uh, dwight schultz as reginald barkley who we also know from voyager and first contact he's also mentioned <laughs> at length but from uh, from the angle in a non-canonical short story called Barclay Program 9, which I'm sure we'll talk about mm-hmm. at the end of the episode. He is best known probably for playing Captain H.M. Howlin' Mad Murdoch uh, in, of course, uh, the A-Team. I almost didn't even mention what that's from. Mm. Uh, Dr. Animo on Ben 10, Adrian Toomes, the high-flying septuagenarian, the vulture in many games. This was the biggest decade of his life, the 80s. He was a stage guy who did Williamstown and then was kind of sucked in uh, for the A-team. Did that for seven years. Then right before this, he had played a huge lead role in the brilliant and beloved by me, but not by him. Fat Man and Little Boy, surrounded by A-listers in that movie. And he holds his own with each of them. He shines as J. Robert Oppenheimer. He hasn't worked really much on screen other than that. He blames his own conservative politics loudly for it. His video games are a more solo inter 
surprise for an actor. Plenty of work there. Primarily villains, Wolfenstein, uh, more Marvel stuff like Marvel villains, Odin, Magneto, Living Monolith, Mesmero, Atuma, Technovore, several Crash Bandicoot titles, DC as the Mad Hatter, Reverse Flash, World of Warcraft, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, back to DC with Professor Pig, Final Fantasy titles, Mass Effect, Metal Gear, Animatrix, etc. Really an incredible career. And my favorite role of his is certainly Lieutenant Reginald Barkley. At the time, I knew that he was Murdoch from from A Team, but I totally had forgotten in watching this. I just he is he is Barkley in, in my mind at this point. Totally fantastic performance. Yeah, I want Jimmy G to talk about what was going on behind the scenes of this episode before we delve into this amazing opening. Only one item of note: the objects that O'Brien is testing, the duranium, which we recall from a matter of perspective, those were actually U.S. Navy transport cases that they had brought in for that. There are a couple of other throwbacks to some episodes, um, but we'll wait to bring those up until we crack open Lucy and Khan's theory about this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I alluded to that earlier, but maybe we should just get the quick, you know, not the full theory because we'll kind of discuss that all, but like I want to have the context of people listening to this about what we think is going on here. So yeah, Lucy, why don't you talk about your theory here? Okay, so the overarching theory is that this entire episode is taking place inside a holodeck program written by Barclay, except for the very end where he deletes the program and walks into the hallway of the actual Enterprise. This means that all of the parts of the episode that are supposedly in the holodeck are actually a holodeck within a holodeck. And so we can sort of interpret the entire episode as an exploration of Barclay's fantasy life, aka a series of hollow pursuits. And I also want to posit that we can conclude from this, perhaps, that Barclay has some kind of humiliation kink around getting caught having inappropriate fantasies and an addiction to the holodeck. I love it. It's such an interesting framing, and I think with that in mind, as you're watching it, as we'll talk about it, as everyone has said over email, it's canon now. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wanted to say, too, that the other the other uh, kind of broader theory than that that's out there, I like it contained to this, but the other broader theory that might be the case is that the entirety of Star Trek Next Generation is in the holodeck, that these are characters he made up. And when he leaves at the end, he's not necessarily going into the Enterprise. He doesn't seem to be the kind of officer that might serve on the Enterprise. So it's all his fantasy of serving on the Enterprise from another ship altogether. You're thinking of St. Elsewhere. That's what I just could say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right? We're all in the snow globe. Oh, that's one of the stories that Dwight Schultz tells, is going in for St. Elsewhere and having Bruce Paltrow him at the thing and say there aren't going to be any reagan assholes insane elsewhere and kicking him out and then he got the a-team so i only say it because he writes about it relatively constantly wow all right well my appreciation of him is 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 diminishing uh but (laughs) great performances yes (laughs) for those who separate such things but this cold open is strange from the start right it's it's in 10 forward we see this character that we have not seen or heard mention of at all and i think this this is part of what lends more credence to lucian's theory than anything else is that like we are tricked into believing that this person has been here all along from the way this introduction starts so he gets a port a drink from gynan he's kind of a cowboy 
figure here, which plays into the uh, audience's uh, expectations of him being the guest star and being this Murdoch A-team kind of cowboy character. And then it immediately gets turned on its heel by the end of this. But what do we think about our main cast here reacting to this the very first thing we see is troy right and i wrote down damn deanna uh before i realized <laughs> that it was the barkley episode right because like that's that's the sort of you know <laughs> key uh frame issue that we're looking at is like oh something is strange something has changed here and then as soon as i saw him i rejoiced because i remembered that it was the barkley episode we Spoiler alert, almost named a cat Barkley just so that we could uh, call it broccoli. (laughs) But then we met the cat and it just wasn't right. But I love how um, everyone plays to their trope, right? Everyone, like, everyone is just a little bit them plus. So you get Riker with all that swagger and machismo. You get... Troy with her with her wiggle. I don't know. I, I... <laughs> Well, you get some deference from Jordy, you know, right. some reason that then is pushed out. And what a great fall. Well done, sir. Speaking of pushing. Yeah, no, I was going to say like, he's <laughs> <laughs> it's right down the stairs from psycho. It's like a 30 foot, 30 foot drop. <laughs> Where's that Love chair? It. He definitely does look behind him for the chair to make sure he doesn't, Hit it too early. It was supposed to be closer hey, than this. If you were going back that far that fast, you'd look behind you too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he was looking for the chair. <laughs> what do you think of this, Lucy? And how does this figure into uh, all this? Well, I think that, you know, part of what we're seeing here is that the episode starts us off inside a holodeck, right? But we don't know that right away. And we might start to suspect that as we see things like, you know, Troy sort of overacting and all of these things, right? But we know for sure when Barclay says save program and walks out of the holodeck, right? So we know from the beginning of the episode that we're playing with this idea of being in scenes and not being sure yet whether or not they are happening on the real enterprise or happening on the holodeck. And I think that or according to my interpretation, what's going on here is that as we see this kind of setup and then holodeck reveal happen a few times, that kind of trick on the viewer is sort of setting us up for the end reveal that this whole thing has been happening on the holodeck and that we had holodecks within holodecks for these holodeck scenes. After reading that theory, I figure what's necessary at that point is for Barkley to program in a safe word so that the computer knows when and whether to create an actual arch or a fake one within the holodeck. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, something like that. Although we've seen in other episodes that there can be holodecks within holodecks, there must be different end program keywords tied to ending the inner programs. Because we see Mm -hmm. that in, there's that episode with Moriarty, doesn't that have holodecks within a holodeck? And then in Voyager, we see, and we'll talk about that later, I'm sure, Barclay's first episode in Voyager is all about the Doctor being stuck in holodecks within holodecks. Um, And he thinks he's ending programs when he's not ending programs. If this, I mean, this is all about life too, which is so, so fascinating. Aren't we just, you know, we can't prove that we're not in a computer simulation right now? Nope. Nope, we can't. Anyway, uh, (laughs) we can't prove that we are either. I mean, there are a lot of (laughs) mathematic models that say that once it 
has been posited, then it's, pro it's more likely to be true than not. The cat is neither dead nor alive. We are in a simulation or not. But we, what I do know is that these Dan Canisters are falling off of anti-grav pads and uh, it's Barkley's fault for some reason. LaForge talks to Riker about his performance. He's always late. He's always nervous. Can't stand to be around him. This is where Broccoli gets introduced as the nickname, uh, which I had forgotten again but and laughed out loud. Uh, I smiled out loud even uh, when, uh, <laughs> when I first heard it because I was just like, oh, yeah, I, I, that detail had escaped me. And that it was Wesley that gave him the nickname, which kind of feels not Wesley-like to be a little mean in that way. What did you, what did you think about that, Kate? Did you, you want to stand up for, for Wesley here? Uh, it's hard to stand up for Wesley in this moment because it is, it is kind of, it's so mean, but to me, it's that he's found someone, you know, he, I think that he's constantly so aware of his youth and how that makes him different from everyone. And then he finds someone even lower on the totem pole mm. just because of how awkward he is. And he maybe takes advantage of that power. I don't know. Uh, also, Broccoli sounds like Barkley, so that's fun. <laughs> or, or alternatively, Wesley would not behave that way, and that is yet another piece of evidence that this is a program written by Barclay, and none of this is actually happening. Dun, dun, dun. You just blew it. my mind. <laughs> <laughs> but so the important detail here, as well as long as plot goes, is that one of the uh, canisters does indeed fall. It starts leaking. We get that nice smoke effect. Everyone's like, hmm, there's a smoke machine in there. <laughs> we get all of the back and forth with Riker and Barclay. He kind of sticks it to him a little bit. And then that's the end of the teaser. Credits roll. I love the contrast between super uber confident Machismo Barclay in 10 forward. And then you see him and how he interacts with people. And it is like, oh, God, like, just finish your sentence. Like, what is the matter with you? He's, he's off-putting even as an audience member. I want to ask Jimmy what, what he thinks about the technique of Barclay's stutter that comes uh, here and there. We, we talk often kind of about adding that physical technique to the character itself. Did this one work for you? Uh, it worked brilliantly. I, I, was, I bought and sold, and it's probably the number one reason I don't agree with Lucian, because I, w I don't think that Barclay, the character, would have the skill set to so believably manifest this this other personality, unless he just has a psychotic break. The actor just nailed it. I really wish I had no idea about his politics. And really, I, it's just it, it's plummeting by the second. My uh, my love yeah. for him. It's it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. I didn't either until I I really apologize, dude. I just looked at his credits and it's inescapable. Like you said, if you separate yourself from it, I mean, it just, he nailed it. I mean, he is, his machismo one is more, uh, has more affectation. Mm -hmm. It it doesn't come across to me as believable. It seemed to me a character choice. Like the actor decided, I don't want to be as believable when I'm being macho as when I'm being Barkley. And those two stark differences make me believe there's two different worlds happening here. One of the things that I was considering along with Lucian's idea is that this is a program that he wrote with his own ship's counselor to try and get him past his very real shyness issues. <laughs> yeah. Which I, I don't want to tip it because he has a lovely tip to that mm -hmm. about the, that. Um, and I got to say, I, I, when Lucien sent it, I was like, I was amazed by the concept. And when I was watching it, there's several points. I was like, mm, it doesn't buy it. But 
by the end, I was like, I can't discount this. <laughs> like, it was, it's like, it, there, there uh-huh. are things you're like, mm, that's not ridiculous at all. I think that Barkley, the character, genuinely is a very anxious person, right? I don't think that Barkley in his hologram sort of activities is pretending to be anxious or pretending to be ashamed. I think he's really feeling those things, but in response to a constructed situation. Um, So I, I think that it's still possible, right, that he is genuinely working through these issues that he has psychologically. Um, and so he's being authentic in those moments, even though he's on a holodeck. Yeah. Yeah. But one thing that I thought about as we get to the next scene here in uh, Picard's ready room is the amount of conversation about Barkley that is happening, not with him present. So that's not, you know, impossible. Clearly, he could have created like a doll-like situation in which he's written these programs of having these people talk to each other about him. Um, But there is some uh, weirdness in this behavior here in in the ready room scene in particular with Picard talking to Riker and Jordy about their report about how uh, they don't think Barkley is up to uh, enterprise speed. It's the first time we've ever really seen anything like this. And they, they mentioned that too. They're like, oh, usually we don't, we don't ever experience anything like this. So this is a weird situation for us. But then I also started to think like, maybe that this is so much more of like how Barkley perceives himself and his own uh, insecurities here. Is that what you guys were getting uh, from here? There was some weird behavior. Like it's, it's strange for Picard to suddenly go, hmm, no, be his best friend. Like that's, that to me is, is, different from what he would usually do and i i i hate to say that that you know that there's anything a character wouldn't do because there is you know people do weird shit but uh, some of the behavior here strikes me as a little out of character for these officers but you know once it gets back to discussing uh, discussing things like the nickname things like that he's right back into what i experienced captain picard to be from episode to episode i think we've seen that the writers of star trek have no qualms about making characters do things that are specific to the need of that episode and don't mm. necessarily inform them as who we know them to be in an overarching uh, a character. It's they, they don't care about it. It's like in this episode, Picard's going to do something because it suits the scene, <laughs> not because it's uh, him. And to me, it felt similar to the way the facsimile Picard acted where it was like, it was so close but just enough, if you really knew them, it started to feel off. And with the interpretation going into it uh, uh, here, I, I was starting to be like, hmm, maybe this, these these interactions are not exactly the way I would see of them. But maybe that's also just bias going in as well. So it's very hard. But it's also this is what the whole episode is about, is that, you know, what what is reality? <laughs> yeah. I know, exactly. Right. That's what makes this theory so fun, right? Like, once it's there, it gets it. It's like anytime yes. somebody tells me that they have COVID immediately. I'm like, <clears throat> and I'm tired and my eyes get glassy. Like, <laughs> I will say that the task is given to LaForge and he has to go and try to make friends with Barclay and it feels weird and amazing. And, you know, he gives him the assignment. Hey buddy, come to my, my morning staff meeting. That's the reward that everyone wants, right? Is like, you have to wake up early and come and talk. I love his version of the cool boss, though, too. <laughs> hey, man, you know what? Whenever you got it, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Like, it's just yes. so... 
<laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yes, exactly. Hey, fellow kids. <laughs> this is the first time we hear Reg as the, the actual diminutive of his name, right? The meeting itself is where we get to meet Duffy. Uh, is it Duffy? Yes. Duffy's the one who talks a lot. I was like, I was like, he said a word, so that means we're going to get at least five lines from him in this episode. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the engineering brain trust that we never see again. <laughs> yes. Who are these people? I have to say, again, this right. episode makes it hard for me to to defend my Wesley because he starts Westplaining so bad. Westplaining. <laughs> in this scene. It's just, you know, and like, mm-hmm. you can see as, as someone who can be yes. awkward myself, seeing how Barkley is trying in that instance to be like, yeah, I, I have an idea. And then to get it like shot down, especially the teacher in me was like, oh, that is exactly what you don't want to have happen. That is just the worst. I thought of two different situations that it reminded me of. And one is every business meeting with one woman and the other one. It's <laughs> true. And the other one is, you know, I, I work kind of all over new places all the time. That's, that's kind of what I, I pursue as part of my career. And when I walk into a theater where I don't know anybody, I'll walk in and literally no one in the room have I ever met other than that one 10 minute audition. And most of them know each other. And it can be a really difficult thing to break in, depending on the group. Stand-ups is what they call it, right? We're like, they're basically just doing a stand-up meeting here and trying to like, oh, how are we going to assess what we're going to do during the day? And not having the expectation of being called on. Oh, I I felt because he was like, literally like, wait, I don't have to present anything. I don't have to be nervous about this. And Jordy's like, no, you don't have to be nervous about it. And then the first thing he does is like, Reg, why don't you fill everybody in on this? And he's like, uh, uh, uh. That happened to me my first week at work at my job where uh, I was literally like 30 people in the room. I'd never met any of them except like the two people that were in the interview track. And someone called me out. And leadership was like, oh, yeah, what do you think about this, Greg? And I did the exact same thing Barkley did. Great first impression. <laughs> Everybody loved And that's that. why you're still there. <laughs> second impression was good after that, maybe. I don't know. Who knows? But then Jordy tells him he should get some counseling. Uh, clearly, he has reluctantly gone to Troy because of the infatuation he has with her. And this scene... Like, so upsetting, right? Like, I think... This one at least becomes apparent fairly quickly, right? The moment she's like, ah, let me help you relax, right? But then, but th- I don't know. It's so much. And then they make out. <laughs> and then and it's, it's yes. And like, it's a real make out. Like they show, yeah. you know, it looks like. Oh, no, he's using his tongue. <laughs> with a big old mouth to mouth resuscitation watching, like, mouth. That is inappropriate. <laughs> I do think that part of what this scene is doing, if my theory is right, is giving us our second taste of starting a scene without showing that he went into the holodeck and giving us the beginning of what could be a plausible counseling session, but then it becomes implausible um, sort of throughout that um, interaction. So I think that's another one of these tricks that could be designed to make us think, oh, wait, is this happening in the overall structure of the episode as well? Although also, you know, they could be forgiven in 1990 for thinking that porn would always start with a plot. (laughs) <laughs> what happens next he fixes, he the, fixes cable, the cable right? don't be fatuous 
we've read interviews from uh, Marina Sirtis about how she perceived her role as, you know, just eye candy and being thrown in fantasies. And this was, uh, I wouldn't say the first episode, but this this episode definitely was like, I think she's talking about this episode right. in particular. Like, this was the fantasy that all the writers and all the staff were trying to write for her from the get-go. And then she had to actually act it. And, uh, I, you know, I just, I, I felt for her. <laughs> no, it is it is very much, I, I was writing down a lot male gaze and, like, you know, Barkley gaze, uh, as it were. I have to say there is part of me that has a fondness for the goddess of empathy just because it's so over the top. And so it is so it is so ridiculous, right? It's so <laughs> over the top and male gazy that it's humorous. But I can't imagine having to be the person fulfilling that role consistently again and again and again and again. I also get the feeling that there were, this was much more sexualized in the writing. And then perhaps, at, at, this is totally a projection, but perhaps because of Marina Sirtis's, like assertion, maybe not make this all about, right. you know, the doing it. Um, because... Goddess of empathy is clearly trying to be like an Aphrodite or like a you know a, a, a goddess of love. I I just think that the conception of it was for her to be much more sexualized. I think so. Yeah, this is the first introduction of the of the lighting of this amazing holodex uh, program. Uh, it's very soft lighting. You get kind of like the Three Musketeers uh, kind of feel from it all, and we'll get more to that uh, as the fantasy progresses. Ten forward, LaForge has got a a second meeting minus broccoli with Wesley and Duffy. And they're talking about his pet project. And this, at first I started to be like, well, there's so many scenes where Barkley is not in, in this episode. So I wasn't sure about how it applied to your theory, Lucian. But then I realized every single scene that is like that, they're discussing him. Yeah, Exactly. There's nothing where they're not talking about him. Very, very different. And then, of course, Wesley gets dressed down by Jordy being like, hey, you did the thing that I didn't want to have happen, you 17-year-old. But then there's a glass and it's twisted, but also leaking. What does that mean? I'm surprised Think Geek didn't sell a version of this Tumblr back in their heyday. Because it is very iconic. I, re- I remember that that glass. I remember that, that moment. Right after Data has given him, them a very good lesson on nicknames <laughs> and name calling, which is very nice. Data is the moral center of this whole crew. <laughs> it's very true. Again, though, supporting the idea that this is Barclay's fantasy, why would it be the case that it just so happens on the day that Barclay is having the sort of pinnacle of a crisis of his holodiction, that the Enterprise is having a potentially ship-destroying problem that is dependent upon this minute engineering issue. I mean, I mean, I go, the only thing I have is I go back to Jimmy. <laughs> you know, the writers have a problem to solve. They just pull the trigger on the writing. We only got 42 minutes. But, you know, yeah. this at least pulls that together and turns it into a story point and not a, a, a story Every problem. single episode of Star Trek and any other piece of drama or comedy is always focused on the day something special happened. True which totally encapsulate everything you just said. Why? Because it's the day something special happened. If it didn't, we wouldn't want to watch the show because we don't care about nothing yeah. happening unless it's called Seinfeld. And that's why this is Barclay's episode. Yeah. He wrote it. He's the writer behind it. It could be. Could be. Exactly. 
that's what I'm saying, right? We have to, like, that's true outside the world of the Star Trek universe, but what's true inside the world of the Star Trek universe, right? What's more plausible? I'm just, I'm starting to come around. Like, the fact that you mentioned the fact that every scene that doesn't contain Barkley is about Barkley, that is, that is, uh, that gets me. Ooh, I'm on board. That gets me. <laughs> and and it's you know uh, Jimmy's point uh, is a good one as well. Like the fact that it is a coincidence doesn't keep me from thinking that it's a coincidence that Barkley might write himself. That's well done, neat. Yeah, this is his fan fiction, and we get to see it full display. And this is where the the science team kind of comes together of trying to figure out what's going on with this glass. There's some theories going around. Barkley uh, is there talking with Forge, Riker, and Wesley, and then Captain Picard kind of just shows up. And says, okay, I'm going to give this to you, Mr. Broccoli. <laughs> and everyone <laughs> laughs. Including me. Laughed out loud. <laughs> Laughed out loud. And then Data does the best nope that he's done <laughs> so far. He fully just stopped. He's middle of talking. Never mind. Yep. <laughs> what was that over there on the screen? <laughs> he's written himself a very nice new subroutine. The most human thing he's ever done. I definitely think if Barclay is into being humiliated, he would include being humiliated by Captain Picard. Oh, I forgot about the kink. You can never forget about the kink. <laughs> it yeah. ties the whole room together. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then uh, LaForge is talking to Guinan, of course, because you know she's the one who should know all about it. And this scene in particular has some strangeness to it, right, Lucian? It does. So there's a point where LaForge keeps asking Guinan to tell him about Barclay. And she keeps saying, you know, I don't really know anything about him. He doesn't really talk. He just orders milk, right? But then, sort of apropos of nothing, Guinan says that she knows that at least Barclay is very imaginative, which doesn't ever get explained, right? Um, LaForge says, how do you know that? And Guinan just says, I know. So how does she know that if he never talks about anything? So I, I'm just saying, unless this is not actually Guinan and we're on the holiday. That's maybe the easiest one to counter argue against. She knows for the same reason in yesterday's Enterprise, she knew that it wasn't reality, that they were in a different time because she's different and she has powers. So, I mean, it's, it's just so easily explained away that she would know about Barkley the same way she could just know this isn't the right time. We're in the wrong one, so let that other enterprise die. Because if you don't, everything gets destroyed. So even more interesting, if I could, is that since she knows, she could put herself in the middle of his holodeck thing, and that is the real guy. Hollow project. That's what I. That's <laughs> soon as I, I didn't connect it until you started talking, Jimmy, and I was like, "But that's how she knows that this is not real." I love her story, though. I love her story. Like, if this whole episode, you know, beyond our meta-theorizing about it, which right. I'm loving, I love this idea of, the, the, she says, the idea of fitting in repels me. And yeah. if this show is the show that we all found when we were misfits, like, this episode is that episode that's like, it's okay. Like, you're going to be a little weird. Mm. And everybody warned me against, you know, hanging out with that weird person, but turns out i'm right i'm just like them i don't know i love it i love her so much she still guides us even if she's not real in this episode <laughs> i i actually have i have a question about sort of canonically Guinan and her family she mentions a cousin in this story do we ever hear anything about 
her Not that I can recall. cousins or uncles or extended family at any other time. She's mentioned that she has a lot of children and husbands. Yes. And husbands. And husbands. That's right. But that's, Lucy, that's kind of why I'm hoping that it isn't <laughs> candid that this is all fake because then we lose just those little nuggets of Algainian that we are given. Jimmy, just jump on my, my sub theory. Yeah. Yeah. So she, she's she's just, participating. She's LARPing in his. Hollow in projected. His, yeah. But does this mean that he has a profound respect for her? Because he doesn't change her. Everybody right. else that we see. Now my head hurts. She changes um, her. He, he does. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm getting itchy. <laughs> I do I do like her speaking of changing into outfits. I love this yellow outfit that she's got right. uh, in this scene. Well, it's orange and it's beautiful. Oh. It's ooh. amazing and it seems to be yes. made of terry cloth. It does. That's what I was like, ooh, that's so comfortable looking. It's like a space track suit. The forge at the end of this figures out, okay, I got to go talk to Barclay. Where is he, computer? Oh, he's in the holodeck. Let me go check this out. Well, go ahead, Kate. Well, this is where I I've got a question for Lucian because and maybe this goes into Lucian's idea because my first thought was shouldn't there be a sock on the doorknob or something of the holodeck? <laughs> like, are there no privacy measures to like ensure that someone can't just come in at any moment? But then that leads me to the idea of the kink, uh-huh. right? Like, if that's part of it, then that's maybe why there wasn't a security measure on the door. Anyway, that's all. I'm, I'm done now. Yes. That was also my thinking, right? I, I don't understand how it could be the case on the Enterprise that, for example, you have to do a security override to get into somebody's quarters. You have to do a security override to get into any other restricted area. Why wouldn't you have to do some kind of security override to get into somebody else's holodeck program? And also, like, ethically, some of these people seem like they wouldn't just randomly walk into somebody else's fantasy life like at least counselor troy doesn't seem like the sort of person who would non-consensually walk into a potential patient's fantasy holodeck program well if we start pulling on the things that counselor troy should not do ethically (laughs) like we can be here for a while last episode yeah this is the other nemesis file thing lucian is that specifically in uh canonical canonically Canon, canonically. Oh, no. We've seen that people can barge in on the Enterprise. We have episode 145, The Manhunt, episode 146, The Emissary, and episode 220 coming up, uh, The Cost of Living, all of which have people just barging in on uh, people in Holic. So before and after this scene, it's already established in the Star Trek universe that... Uh, <laughs> Sock or no sock, you better be careful what you're doing in the holiday because program some trees in that shit and a door right. on, and a bell on the door. Yeah, block it. But and but it still it doesn't discount what you're saying. It, it's we've talked about this on the episode at nauseum about just how dangerous the holodeck is. I mean, it can kill people. It has yes. killed people, and now. Uh, you can use it to totally uh, slip into psychosis. It's uh, it, They really haven't offered a reason why this is a good thing in TNG. <laughs> and people can just walk in on your porn, right? right. Like, well, right. why would you design right. it this way? It's so wrong. <laughs> it's terrible. We often mention Riker's harp porn uh, that happens in his room with harpists and <laughs> surmising that each 
of not just the officers, but everybody on the crew uses the holodeck for that purpose, right? And of so course. all it took was, I think Jordy does like two or three button presses uh, as well as Troy to get through. So there is no lock uh, as far as we can tell. Yeah, I do like think central to my theory, right, is the idea that Barclay has a kink for being humiliated and wants to be walked in on, right? So whether or not the Enterprise normally lets people walk in on people's mm. holodeck programs, I think that the idea here is that Barclay programmed this holodeck within a holodeck scenario for the purpose of having officers, particularly superior officers, walk in on his lurid fantasies about the crew. Can we talk about Wesley as little uh, Lord Fauntleroy? <laughs> <laughs> Eating a pie in the background. <laughs> Oof. Amazing. It looks like those medieval paintings, right? And so that's what this is a little bit. He's Georgie Porgy. Three Musketeers-ish, but also buffoons at the same time. Well, the Three Musketeers are pretty buffoony. They, that is true. This is where we get the big sword fight, right? Uh, this is uh, clearly a stunt double. <laughs> <laughs> Much of it, sure. But a lot of it, it I think, is him. He's a, like a Williamstown guy. He would certainly have it. All the close-ups are him, but it, that's there's a reason why the, the camera is way back. If you look at the, the guy's hair is a different color and not he's not balding. No, okay, I, I buy it. I'm just saying some of the stuff he's facing the camera. So some of the stuff even far away yes. is him, which is nice and kind of important to note. I went off on this whole side thing about how Barkley knows how to fence. <laughs> a, you know, I, I'm about to go teach a bunch of people to, to fence next week. And the, the thing is, fencing's a very nerdy sport. So a, a nerd of Barkley's type, certainly I can see him actually enjoying that sport. It draws people who are drawn to the same things the five of us are, especially now that it's not like an, a weapon that people use. Now you're coming to it because, you know, you think it's cool and you think it's cool because you saw it. Or you like to LARP with it. I, it'd be very easy to write a program for the holodeck to teach you how to fence or certainly to teach you choreography that's already in its banks somewhere. And, and I thought that was a really interesting little subplot. LaForge comes in, Barclay's mid-fight, he had just kind of bested Picard, I think, or was about to, and then Jordy calls. And this moment where Barclay turns, he's not, he's surprised, but he's not that surprised, <laughs> right? Yeah. The way he plays this is very much like, oh, the thing that I wanted to have happen has happened now. <laughs> Um, so LaForge calls him out for this. He's very much like, what the fuck? Holodiction. This is the first time we hear that phrase uh, said in uh, LaForge talking to Barclay about this back in 10 forward, trying to be like, hey, buddy, this is he's trying to be the cool boss again and uh, deal with what he has just seen. And he defines social anxiety in what he talks about, like his experiences so well and then is dismissed immediately as you're just shy that's this uh, the other part i just think it does such a great job of showing that experience of that severe social anxiety and how often people are just like oh come on just try a little harder well it was still eight or nine years later before i think i heard the term social anxiety i don't think i heard it until ricky williams in the nfl uh, that was the first time I remember a celebrity just kind of saying, I have social anxiety. I won't be talking to the press. And everybody went after him so hard right. for it. Barkley's response when he's like, I can't remember the exact words, but it's basically like, 
it's not just shy. He says, you're just shy. Then Barkley says, shy sounds like nothing serious. You can't know. Right. That mm-hmm. that hit me. That yeah. when his line was like, oh, yeah, that, I guess that is. It's hard. Like, it, it impacted me. It's like, oh, I was, I'm just shallow enough that I wouldn't be able to recognize that until that kind of thing was said to me. And it's like, it, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, oh, in his delivery, it was like, it, it had me in the moment. It's like, this guy is in pain. As well as LaForge's fake or real reaction to this is kind of probably what Barclay wants. Like he wants validation. He wants people to understand and he wants to share that he has this anxiety, but he's unable to in, you know, his quote unquote real life, but he's able to do it in this scene. And that's probably something he was trying to work through. He even says like he's, he's unable to create a situation in which he can talk to LaForge you know, adequately. That's why he created the, you know, the fighting thing is what he's trying to explain to. But I would posit he's actually creating this scene mm-hmm. to communicate to the fake LaForge how he's really feeling. And it all comes together. I love it. And still yeah. he writes the uh, the LaForge in an adversarial way who doesn't really understand him. Geranium test cylinders are still a problem, though. And... Uh, <laughs> We get O'Brien. Uh, he's talking about what's happening there and how the transporter's not working now. And they're like, oh, gosh, I, we got to deal with this now, too. And uh, LaForge has got a great moment of being like, I'm glad I don't have anywhere to go. <laughs> Again, the world's most bland engineering problem is occurring. <laughs> it's true. Well, he doesn't want to work when he's on vacation in the holodeck. I don't want to think about something complex. Yeah, it's a trivial engineering problem with massive consequences if it goes wrong. <laughs> so this is the first scene in which there's three people not talking about Barclay at first. And then it gets moved back to, oh, we should assign uh, Lieutenant Barclay to this because of his other things that he's been doing with the power thing. And it seems almost like for someone that we've never heard of, for the captain and the commander and the and the chief engineer to all agree that he's the best person for this job. It's self-insert fanfic for sure. That's right. <laughs> the important detail though is that uh, uh, he's got to meet at 1400 hours. He's got a date. He's got a time that Barclay has got to meet. And guess what? He's not going to make it. Uh, because he's having a counseling session with Troy right now. And this counseling session, again, is why I'm Team Lucian all of a sudden on all of this. <laughs> because there is no reason for her to do what she does in terms yes. of lean back, close your eyes, I want to make you comfortable. Nope, nope. And she has to sit right next to him. To, nope, right? nope. This is every... Mm-hmm. Let me turn the lights down. Let me turn the lights down. Nope. Especially, why would you do this with somebody who's coming to you for anxiety, like <laughs> social anxiety? And you're like, I'm going to sit two inches from you. Like, what? His posture in this in this scene, though, is so interesting and fun. I love that his leg is crossed over himself, kind of creating a barrier, barrier between him and Troy. Well, and what's great, you know, just from a stepping back is that it gives you that illusion for just a hot second of oh it's another holodeck scene uh but it's not or is it i don't know at this point i'm i'm, I'm willing to believe anything <laughs> uh but on his way out as he after he's like oh i learned to breathe thank you he he runs out and almost runs into this woman in the hallway and makes the most delightful noise uh, <laughs> I, I noted that too it was so funny Oop. It's such a good oh. performance. It's the character is so fun and he does it so well. He doesn't get to this appointment at 1400 hours. Riker's fed up. I'm going. Where is command? He's in the holodeck. 
And uh, they all three of them, LaForge, Riker, and Deanna Troy, all go to the holodeck. And, and, and as an audience member, this is kind of just a nice moment where everybody gets into the turbo lift and we all know what's going to happen. He's, he's going to get discovered. And this is where I think the kink is kind of shown even for the audience because like we know. Yeah. And they all just barge right in there, like, no problem. The three of us are just going to barge right into this guy's holodeck. And he has Mm -hmm. added a character to reflect a new presence of someone he didn't know was coming. I mean, this character didn't come out earlier when when Jordy came in. So that that even speaks to it being predicted, prepared, written. That's true. They're all trying to challenge the three intruders. And my favorite bit about this is they call for number one. Number one, you got to fight them. And then Wesley looks up from his pie eating and goes, number one. <laughs> Dumbfounded Jonathan Frakes uh, trying to be. I, I, the optical effect of him being short doesn't really work too well. I think they could have pulled it off a little it bit was better. Still awesome. yeah, it's still he kind of looks like he's crouching. but uh-huh. Yeah. Pocket-sized Riker. <laughs> it's cr- Did I miss the fight? Did I miss it? It's so Which cute. is also really cool with how a subordinate might view Riker. I mean, we've we've come to like him over the seasons and sort of excuse even though when we bring up his questionable behavior sometimes but if you were really the person who worked for him like why wouldn't you if you're to uh personify your idea of him make him both like you saw him in the earlier the opening scene where he's not as tough as he comes across more like a bully who once stood up to backs down and then here where he's not nearly as big as he thinks he is it's fun to see how somebody else interprets not only him but everybody like this is the cartoon of you how i see you um so it's nice to see them all together interacting like now i just secretly wish that wharf was in this episode more so big question why wasn't he why wasn't he He doesn't even want to fuck with a dream of war. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. I also uh, appreciate, too, that Troy at first is like, oh, this is cute, right? It's just a part of a healthy fantasy life. I think this is kind of the wish fulfillment that Barclay wants. He wants, not necessarily Counselor Troy, but someone to validate him. And this is kind of what's the the theme of this, is that it's all right for him to be doing what he's doing until Troy sees the version of herself, the goddess of empathy. Yes. More shit-eating grins from Riker and LaForge here as they're like, nah, that's some comeuppance there. She's just being like, oh, everything's fine. Oh, wait, no, I'm in this? Bullshit. And what does she say to herself? Muzzle it. Like you do. Say that like a gendered insult there? What's going on? But if this is a holodeck within a holodeck, this is extremely humiliating, right? To, to engineer it so that your crush catches you fantasizing about her. Ooh. And with somebody else. Yes. Because he's with Beverly now. All he's missing is the donkey ears in that scene with yeah. Beverly. He just <laughs> yes. Definitely got some Midsummer Night's Dream things going on there. You know, nobody's happy about any of this. <laughs> They've got a uh, walk and talk here where uh, I actually really like that Barclay and LaForge have this, once again, heart to heart. And LaForge says, hey, look, I understand this holodection to a certain extent. I fell in love with there once, just a few episodes ago. <laughs> uh, and I had to delete my girlfriend and maybe you should delete your girlfriends too. I mean, I think it, it speaks something that, that the only person who's used the word is Jordy. And I think it is a really interesting addiction thing that it implies that one addict is 
telling another addict that you can talk to me if you need to, this is hall addiction, you know, and he implies that he can talk to mm. him because I'm also an addict. So, I mean, as, as someone who is open about my uh, alcoholism, I, I have that conversation relatively often with people who are either hinting to me to let me know that they share the issue or fully asking me and then seeing if I want to go to their meeting or anything else like that. It wouldn't surprise me if one of the writers was an alcoholic, is all I'm saying. It's a, a fascinating kind of signal. That's how it hit me. I like that. I hadn't thought of that interpretation, but I like that that's why LaForge is uh, almost like that sponsor character here uh, in this in this particular interpretation. Yeah. The whole I've been there before and I can help us find the way out is a real repeated mantra kind of among addicts. Emergency happens. The ship is accelerating out of control. They don't know why. Let's try to drop out of warp. They cannot. Red alert. This is where the big kind of crux climax occurs. Barclay is there with uh, the entire engineering dream team, as we mentioned before. But before that, there is a scene on the bridge in which Picard is talking about doing the saucer separation thing at warp nine, accelerating. That seems like a bad idea. Terrible idea. And not even plausible. They tell him it could even puncture the warp field around them. Who knows what would happen there? It, it won't just be the Enterprise Frisbee. It'll actually look like a Frisbee. So who knows how far it'll go. <laughs> spinning and spinning and spinning. But then we get this nice scene where Barclay gets to show off some deductive reasoning excellence here of trying. Maybe it's not a computer problem or a software or a hardware problem. Maybe it's us. Maybe it's something that we're doing that we're spreading. Uh, and then they, they point to Duffy. Maybe it's Duffy. <laughs> Duffy's fault. <laughs> then we get some fun techno babble about some comments pounds and there's 15,000 of them that, that could be doing this. Oh, wait, no, 532. Well, wait, no, five. And then they narrow it down and do all that. It's a nice way to whittle it down to the one thing that might be happening. But then they just relatively not fast stroll <laughs> to the cargo bay to figure out if it's While there. While saying they're not sure if it'll work. <laughs> they stop to put on gloves. They've got like protective equipment. They're going very slowly into the canister, <laughs> full knowing that like five minutes, we got five minutes or this thing's going to blow up here. Uh, what did you guys think about this? <laughs> Time dilation. <laughs> yeah. I think they did not have a big budget for effects in this episode beyond what mm. the costuming budget for Holodeck was. It's true. This is a quote unquote bottle episode because... It all takes place on the thing. I guess the one big set would be the holodeck set, but they can do that. It was all that was not on location. That was clearly in the set. Getting towards the end of that season, they're like, what can we do where nothing blows up? <laughs> and we only can afford two guest stars. Well, I love that they start to do it. They're wearing their little Michael Jackson glitter gloves to like figure things out. Right? <laughs> and then problematic and in then itself. At one point, they're like thirty seconds to destruction, but then everything just sort of works itself out even as you know they're they're sort of reading out the data is sort of like this is happening no this is happening N never mind everything's cool guys we're fine it's all good it's like the andromeda strain yes yeah everything's inert it's fine yeah <laughs> don't worry about it worked out go home well, the silly thing is, I mean, I, I am no mechanic. I know very little about cars and how they work. But I do know that engines run hot. And if they're hot, you got to cool them down. Seems like that should have been the first thing they did with these injectors. And it ends up being the problem. They're just, oh, we just got to get this to 200, you know, negative 200 Celsius and everything should be fine. Why not just do that 
as a matter of course. In the first place. Well, in that's the not, first place. it was only specific to that gas that they had found. That gas had a property that it goes inert at. It, it, so that's not something you would logically jump to. Let's freeze everything. It was because they found one specific thing, right? I know. I'm, I'm, the warp engine is not a combustion engine. Yes, I did. <laughs> but still, cool it down. Put some water on the radiator. It wasn't the <laughs> engine. It was the little holes. They were plugged with gunk. <laughs> The, the injectors. The gunk was, you know, you can't fuck with gunk, man. Are you questioning uh, Reginald Barkley's writing? Never. <laughs> yes, his fan fiction is. Uh, but I will also say he fucks with gunk a lot. That yes, he does. <laughs> yeah. Don't take a black light into the holodeck. <laughs> so everything works out. Danger is gone. As you said, it is just wrapped up very quickly. A few smacks on the back and everybody's, you know, copacetic with Barclay. Hey, you even, hey, you did it. We couldn't have done it without you, Barclay. You did it. Uh, and then <laughs> we get this weird scene, and this is this is the, the ending kind of payoff moment of Lucian's theory here, where he walks slowly and deliberately from the turbo lift down on the bridge. We've never seen him on the bridge before. I don't think we've ever seen like a junior officer do this performative type of thing, but we don't know that he's on the holodeck at this Maybe point. his heroics here led to a higher degree of interaction with the crew and respect and all of his dreams came true. And now that he's dating Deanna, he can go down to the front of the, <laughs> we just don't know it yet. Either way, he's on a holodeck at this point, right? right? So if either he's on a holodeck um, that he just entered, right? So he he entered a new holodeck so that he could play out the fantasy of resigning and then said end program and then left. Or he entered the bridge on the outer holodeck, right, that has been going on the entire episode. It's not a new holodeck instance. It's just he's still on the original holodeck he's been on the whole time. And played out the end of his entire fantasy program and then ended the program and left the holodeck. And there's no way to know which it is. I'm sold either way. It's a very meta way of interpreting it. And I think it is very much like, you know, we don't, I mean, not to get too, you know, crazy spiritual, but like, we don't know what's going to happen after we delete our programs. They'll be gone. <laughs> <laughs> right? Worms meet. I want to know, though, why it is so easy to delete things on the holodeck. Why, why, <laughs> you know, there's not a computer voice that comes on and says, are you sure you want to delete all of those things? <laughs> 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 there needs to be a dialogue box. That you're Clippy comes on and says, yes. looks right. like you're trying to delete yourself. Right. Are you sure? I mean, it has <laughs> to be the little, the little guy from Jurassic Park, though, doesn't it? Clippy's oh, yeah. great. Yes. But, yeah. little, the DNA. The what is program nine? What is program nine? Okay, is I did a little deep right? dive there. Did anybody else? Okay. Please tell us. All right, so program nine. <laughs> there is a non-canonical, non-canonical short story that was eventually put into the Strange New World 7 or something like that, one of the one of the collections, and it's called Barclay Program 9. And in this short story, which takes place on Deep Space Nine, a trader comes in to talk to Quark, and among the things he's selling is a hologram program, and it says Barclay number nine. And Quark or one of the other Ferengi puts it in, and they describe in the story basically Deanna 
as the goddess of empathy. And then the theory is that it's the first time, uh, you know, when he sees that, and then he says, I want a different one, number 15. And then he goes to the one with the, the swords people, right? The three musketeers. So that's a different program. And then when they come in later and see both of those together, that might be even a different program or uh, something that merges those two programs or even a third one when they bring in the one that has Crusher. So the, the theory is after that short story anyway, which again is non-canon, that it's the program that is just Deanna in the forest as the goddess of empathy. Interesting. So it's more about the commodity of what's in the program rather than what is in the program. Right, but they do describe what, what the thing is. And again, this is a short story that's not canon written by a dude. Yeah, I was gonna say, I don't wanna read it. I can no. tell already. Yeah, the, 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 the treatment of a lot of it moving forward really does kind of, the, the discourse around the character, a lot of it really does focus on the incel part of it, which is pretty dark to concentrate on, but it's there. Let's talk about that Voyager episode because I always enjoyed the character of the Doctor and how he was a safety program and ended up being this really kind of interesting character that was like Data but very different than Data because he was an AI that was trapped only in a specific area and, and only on this computer. So how does that meta conversation inform this episode? Yeah, so I thought it was interesting that this episode, Hollow Pursuits in, in Next Generation, it's the first Barclay episode, and then Projections in Voyager is the first Barclay episode in Voyager. Um, and what happens in that episode is that it starts again on a holodeck similar to the one to the hollow pursuits episode except it's starring the holographic doctor um, and the holographic doctor is in a situation where he's scanning himself and he seems real and everybody else in the enterprise seems like a hologram and barclay shows up in this episode barclay is a character that the Doctor has never met and is not on the Voyager. And we find out later that um, the reason why Barclay is even possibly in this program is because the holographic doctor, his programming had been uh, supervised partially by Barclay initially when, when all of that was happening. What's interesting to me in sort of parallel with, with Hollow Pursuits is that the entire episode of, of Voyager projections is about the doctor being in a holodeck in a holodeck. It's canonically a holodeck within a holodeck. Throughout the entire episode, the hologram of Barclay is trying to convince the doctor that the doctor is in fact a real person and that he needs to destroy the holodeck warp core in order to end the program and escape the holodeck. So I, I think it's interesting because if my interpretation is, is right or holds water about hollow pursuits, it's sort of like an additional reflection upon this whole idea of Barclay being involved in holodecks within holodecks and having this connection to this sort of weird epistemological question of whether you're in a holodeck or not. That is fascinating. And also the, uh, the detail that Barclay was involved in the programming of the holographic doctor means that maybe he's actually, as you're saying, like maybe he's not actually on the Enterprise. Maybe he's actually just a member of Starfleet that is working on holodex programs. And this was his like ultimate test. Right. He was. He was assigned to the Jupiter, like some holodeck programming institute on the Jupiter moon. He specifically programmed the doctor, the Voyager doctor's interpersonal interactions, which is just brilliant <laughs> because the doctor also is a little awkward and not in the same way, but I just thought it was a nice little touch. There. Yeah, that's great. It's an echo. I really want to get your take, Lucian, on the way 
they implemented it because in Voyager, it's really easy to see the holodeck within a holodeck because the doctor is AI and has no physicality. So it's just, it's instant that he could be with a, you know, a dream within a dream because yes. he has no physicality. So there doesn't have to be a manifestation of, well, where's the one holodeck in relation to the other, which Barkley did. You have to account for that with Barkley because he, he has a corporal form. So if there is that outer holodeck, how are you envisioning that with, because you had mentioned it in the episode in your email that, you know, there's an inner holodeck on the Enterprise and an outer yeah. holodeck. Well, I, I would think it would work the same way as um, in that Next Generation episode with, with Moriarty, where Picard and Data and I think a bunch of other people realize that they haven't actually exited the holodeck. Mm. So I, I, I just think it would be similar to that. So it's like tricking your mind, though. How does that work in the physical world? I don't know. I mean, I don't even understand how it works in the holodeck that, like, you start out in this like box with walls and then it seems like you could walk endless distances. I assume it's because those boxes move in any direction, lift and come out and, and create all of the shapes and textures. And then the rest is the projections of light, projections of chemicals, sound, all that kind of stuff. Why can you like walk a really long distance in a straight line? Because it, it, it moves. moves. It, it, it's the whole room. Oh, it's like a, it's it's like like a, a treadmill? Yeah, the whole room like has the ability to go in every direction. If we can make up that you can create any uh, you know any type of matter with the transporter technology, that's basically what it's trying to do. But it's doing it in such a seamless way that we don't perceive it, which is why it makes it so much interesting when we're talking about these meta conversations of like, is that just what we're experiencing right now? Right. Or are we in a computer simulation right now? We don't know. Um, and so... The holodeck is uh, us creating God. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, you have to just assume that it's that part of the holodeck's functionality is mechanical. Otherwise, right. it won't work. If you've been following Star Trek from the beginning, it gets better because we get more creative, right? We we learn from those mistakes, like specifically the, the replicator. Uh, in Star Trek Discovery, mm -hmm. they address very specifically how the replicator works and is gross and disgusting <laughs> what it is but it's it's like fans going eh, that doesn't make sense why how can you just take that and they're like okay well, let's think this through as the decades went on like oh there's actually we have this way of sort of justifying it and if we were if i think tng was starting now the holodeck would not be a room mm. with black lines and a floor that's mechanical it would be some version of vr they just didn't, yeah, they couldn't right. imagine that then, right? So now we have to justify it for them retroactively. Uh, we don't need to decide what it is, but we enjoy deciding what it is. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. Speaking of deciding what it is, Ooh. let's decide upon what we think about this episode. It is the introduction of Barclay, as we've said. He goes on for a long career, both in TNG, uh, some of the movies. I think he's in First Contact. And he goes on to Voyager. And this was kind of our first take of him. So, uh, Jimmy, I'll throw it to you. What did you think of uh, Hollow Pursuits? I loved it. I love the introduction of Barkley, uh, mainly because I love when I'm watching a movie or reading a book, when you see a character who isn't already a badass. Who In all of our other characters on the Enterprise, they settle into who they become, but they're already top-notch. And we don't get to see him go from an unlikable person, because I remember very vividly not liking Barkley at first, having that reaction to him, and then 
you see him in later episodes and he rises to the occasion. He becomes a more confident and enterprise-like officer. And I really enjoy seeing characters like that introduce and evolving. So I love that. I love the idea of the uh, the holodeck. However silly sometimes it gets, it's just fun sci-fi. And that's what sci-fi is for is like, what if? this thing could do something. So for the episode, I'm going to give the episode eight and a half diminutive Rikers, but <laughs> I'm going to give Lucian's theory of the holodeck within a holodeck 10 non-canon apocryphas. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right, Eric, what do you think? I'm giving this one a nine head cannon salute. <laughs> I I already liked it. I, I love going through it uh, with Lucian's point of view and uh, the various things we all talked about today uh, made me even like it more. I'm in. Uh, I, I think Ganon or Guinan is involved. And other than that, nine. Fuck yeah. Wait, did you just link uh, Legend of Zelda to this? <laughs> <laughs> I meant to, too. That one too. <laughs> We're all in the snow globe, man. <laughs> Kate, what is your final thoughts on this episode? I am going to give this episode, this is such a classic for me. I'm going to give this nine program nines. Uh, <laughs> one programs. Uh, uh, just because uh, I have such fondness for Broccoli, both in real canon and now in this head canon that Lucian has given me. And it's given me a lot to think about. Uh, and so I like when I'm able to ruminate on things. So I think, A, it's just given me a lot to think about. And B, it is just a great performance. As sad as I am to know about who he may be in real true. And who knows? It is such a great performance, that juxtaposition between how he is in front of people and then how he is when he is in his own head is just so beautifully portrayed uh, that I, I dig it. Awesome. All right, Lucian, what are your, what are your thoughts on this episode? Oh my God. I love thinking about this episode because it's, it is possible to view it as two different possible sort of realities of what's actually happening. So I'm going to give it eight philosophical ponderings. But if it weren't for the philosophical ponderings, I, I don't know how I would feel about it. But I, I, I just find it very interesting sort of like trying to think through what is actually happening with the holodecks. Like it's a puzzle to be solved almost, right? Exactly. Or it's a puzzle to never be solved, but view in two mm. mutually exclusive, interesting ways. Just like life. <laughs> I also uh, agree with all of you. I love the performance, uh, even if the performer himself might not have been uh, someone I respected. I respected what he did in this episode. It was a interesting introduction. It played with audiences and fan fiction and many of the ideas that are a lot more pervasive in pop culture and nerd culture now, but weren't, you know, uh, really investigated in in sci-fi, especially po very popular sci-fi like like this episode, uh, you know, was a part of, of, of Star Trek's, um, you know, resurgence. We've talked a lot about how these this back half of season three is really the part of um, Next Generation that catapulted it into the the fandom and how much people love it now because of it just back-to-back -back different interesting and exciting episodes and i think this is definitely one of them it has a lot of impact as far as where uh the introduction of barclay goes to i remember 
you know, not loving the character at, uh, right off the bat. But as we talked about in this discussion, he's another insert kind of character where the audience can kind of see themselves, right? Wesley was one, but at the time he was also very much maligned for being that young plucky kid who knew everything. This guy is not that, right? He doesn't know everything. He comes to the solution very difficultly. He goes through trials that many audience members, uh, you know, resonated with a lot of audience members, myself at the time, as being like, oh yeah, I, I, I've had moments of that, that, that nervosity and that stuttering and what would I do in those situations and what are the fantasies that I come up with in order to deal with uh, real world uh, anxiety like that. So it's got a lot going for it. I'm going to give it um, nine out uh, of... Oh man, I don't have anything. Nine stutters. Nine stutters. Nine stutters of not having anything and being nervous. But I really enjoyed talking about it with you, Lucian. Thank you so much for coming on. Adding your insight to this has been wonderful. Where can people find out more about what you're doing, the games that you're designing? I have a, I, I've never actually played it, but I just love the title of your game, Visigoths versus Malgoths. How can people find out about that? Thank you. Yeah, so um, you can find a bunch of my games on my itch page it's necromancy.itch.io and visigoths versus Malgoths is the one that people seem to like the most so i recommend it awesome well thank you again so much and i uh, miss your 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 musings about star trek uh and would love to have you back on and talk more about them. yes thank you i'd love to come back uh, it was a delight thanks everybody Thank you. It was so nice to meet you. It was great to meet you too. Yeah, and it's you, the holodeck, so I have made my pants be wet. Ooh. The door's locked. There's 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 a sock on the door. <laughs> and it's a two-digit code, so nobody's breaking that. <laughs> it's 69. <laughs> nice. We appreciate you for voyaging with us on this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we are continuing on our mission with the next episode of the third season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Follow Reengage on Instagram and Twitter at ReengageTNG to get updates when episodes are published. You can follow our various cultural bridge crew on all of the social medias. Kate Yeager is Yeagerlicious. Eric Gratton is at Eric Falls Down. Greg Tito is at Greg Tito on Twitter and at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Jimmy G is at the Jimmy G on Instagram. Reengage is edited by me, Greg Tito. Logo artwork by Mojo Jojo97. Theme music is by Ryan Marth. Thank you so much for listening. Stand by now as Dr. Beverly Crusher is ready 